You're listening to a Sunday morning message from Glory Day Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Thanks for joining in. For more information about Glory Day and next steps you can take with us, check out gdlc.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at GDLC Houston. We are, have begun a, a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And it's a story of rebuilding. A story of rebuilding God's people then, but I like to look at it as a story of rebuilding God's people now. You know, what does it look like in 2022 following a couple years of COVID? And how do we bring back folks together as a body of Christ? And so last week we spent a considerable amount of time digging into the history and the context of the book of Nehemiah, how we got to chapter 1. And so if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go to gdlc.org, and around the front page you'll see the sermon from last Sunday, and you can watch that. Quick recap. If you remember, the two remaining tribes of the southern kingdom, Judah, had been destroyed. And they were taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And when the Medes and Persians uh, conquered Babylon... The king, uh, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, he allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland, to Jerusalem. And as, as they returned, immediately the rebuilding of the temple and the surrounding areas began under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, Ezra chapter 3, okay? So my intent today is to connect Ezra and Nehemiah together. So I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 390. And I want to just give you a real, again, understand Ezra and Nehemiah were written to be together, and we've separated these things, one about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the other one about rebuilding the walls. Ezra chapter 3 is about rebuilding the people in Ezra chapter 3 of the temple, the altar, and then 4, you start hearing how the locals the folks that surrounding Jerusalem started, well, you could call them adversaries. They acted like they wanted to help. Zerubbabel saw through that, told them no. This infuriated them. So you got a soap opera in the making. You got slander. You've got bribery. You've got accusations, false accusations that not only raise to the level of priests there, but to the to the king, King Artaxerxes, where we heard in Nehemiah chapter 1. And what Artaxerxes does in Ezra chapter 4, listen what happens, verse 22. He said, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt of the king? You see, what had happened was he slandered and his accusation was brought to King Artaxerxes and said, the people of Jerusalem are only building themselves up so they can overthrow you, O king. And the king said, oh, we'll stop that real quick. So now fast forward 40 plus years. Somehow, for whatever reason, God, the king had a change of heart toward the Jews 
and sends Ezra, the priest, to take as many Israelites that are still left in Persia as he wished back to Jerusalem and provided them gold and silver and what else they needed to build the temple. And in addition, he, uh, he decreed that it was unlawful to levy any taxes on the, the Levites, the priests, or anyone serving in the temple. So it's this understanding how you've got a king who stopped the building, started it back up for whatever reason, that Nehemiah, when God laid a burden on his heart to rebuild the walls, knowing there's accusations and opposition and slander from all the people around the surrounding area, He's got to figure out a way to go to the king and ask permission not only to leave, but to then go rebuild these walls so it becomes a fortified city, playing into his fears again that this kingdom is being developed to overthrow himself. So remember how we ended last week. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, is really um, a case study on, on prayer and, and what happens in, when God lays something on your heart and what it means to be obedient to his word. Remember verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I mean, I'm telling you, that's a great rally cry for any kind of football game going in there. You know, the battle cry, right, and heading into the, into the stadium. But look what happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now notice, look back at 1, verse 1. Is this happened in the month of Kislev? Don't miss this. Beginning in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. I want you to hear what that means. Kislev is December. Nisan is April. Nehemiah prays this amazing prayer in chapter 1, verse 11. says, Lord, give me success. And what happens? Absolutely nothing. For four months, Nehemiah is praying. And this prayer warrior quickly learns what it means to wait. You see, what I believe God was doing in, in, in Nehemiah during this four-month period of waiting was clearing his vision for what he was about to undertake, quieting his heart, replacing that, that anxiety with a calm spirit, and growing his faith in dependence on God. Maybe you've heard the verse, Psalm 46, verse 10. You don't have to go there, but write it down. Put it in connection to this section right here in this opening of chapter 2. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still. And know that I am God. I hear that, y'all. I am terrible about being still. About 
man, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And this would have drove me nuts. Come on, God, there is this urgency. The wall's got to be built. The people are going to be hurt because it's not protected. Come on, really? And God is saying, Nehemiah, be still. And I want you to know that I'm God. Because here's what will happen. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So back to Nehemiah chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, four months later, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So imagine the scene. The king and queen are having this incredibly lavish meal. There's this delightful aroma of the food. Nehemiah has poured them some of their favorite wine and he's bringing it to them. How do I know? He's already tasted it. It's good stuff. He's the cupbearer, the guy who tastes the food for the king and drinks the wine before he takes it so he's not poisoned. And then it's a really odd ending to, to verse 1. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. What does that mean? What I hear and read what this means is exactly what Jesus called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the other church leaders when they would pray, when they would fast. These church leaders would let everybody know that they were in a period of praying and fasting and they would wail and mourn and they'd put on this great show. Jesus said, metaphorically, go pray in the closet. You see, Matthew chapter 6 Maybe mark that, or go there. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Jesus was teaching about prayer. And he said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be, what, seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This does not mean that you only can pray in private. What Jesus is teaching on prayer is when you pray, it's for God's glory, not yours, not mine. This is not for you to like, hey guys, watch me, I'm going to pray right now. Maybe your side note. Do you know why sometimes we're afraid to pray in public? Because we're afraid what people are going to think about our prayers. Can y'all just get over yourself? God wants to hear your prayers because he loves you. This isn't about what kind of prayer show you can put on for everybody else. This is about growing in your relationship with God and people having to be listening around with you. Get over yourself. And by the way, man, I'm going to really get in trouble. Um, when I come to your house, and I love, my wife and I love coming to your homes, okay? Don't ask me to pray. I'm not the token prayer boy. I want you as the head of the house to honor me by you praying. It's your job, not mine. How did I go there? I don't know. 
wasn't in my notes. For four months, Nehemiah kept his prayer private. And he left his concern with the Lord saying, Lord, take this over. This is your timing. I'm going to rest in you. This is Nehemiah saying, I'm not going to show my emotions. I'm not going to try to get the king to pull it out of me. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to be still before the Lord and know that he is God. And I'm going to be exalted. His name is going to be exalted among the earth. Nehemiah is not bringing attention to himself. His focus remains on the Lord and the Lord's timing. Like I tell you, four months is a long time to wait when you feel the urgency that Nehemiah felt. And then it comes, verse 2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. In fact, you could translate this, I was dreadfully afraid. Why? When you're in the presence of the king, you maintain a pleasing countenance to the king. Nehemiah is technically breaking the law by looking sad and it's punishable by death. If anyone was noticeably sad or gloomy in the presence of the king, they were usually killed for throwing shade, being a buzzkill, or acting like a curmudgeon. Suddenly, Nehemiah has put everything on the line. Everything he's been praying for the last four months on a chopping block. Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? That is a bold statement, y'all. That is a bold statement. Nehemiah saying, King, I love you. I pray all is well with you. I honor you and I desire your very best. I'm sad. Because the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. I want you to hear something. Nehemiah's response was vulnerable, it was honest, and he trusted God by staying, saying that statement. Nehemiah could have come up with some kind of opposition or some excuse. Oh, I'm sorry, king. Uh, the wine I tried before, it was bad. So I might got a heartburn right now. Or the pizza we ate last night is really... I mean, think about this. How many times your world is falling apart and someone comes and says, hey, how you doing? Fine. And the king's response, verse 4. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? Don't miss this next line. So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is the moment that Nehemiah had been praying about for four months. This is the prayer, Lord, help me not choke. 
Give me the words. I, I would compare it to Luke chapter 12. When Luke chapter 12, the Lord says, don't be afraid. When people ask you to testify, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll give you the words to say. Instead of just blurting it out, Nehemiah prays to God. Because the most powerful person on the earth, the king, says to Nehemiah, here's your one shot, dude. How can I help? Man, what in the world is going on? Here's what I believe has taken place in the last four months that we're not even aware of. Not only was God changing Nehemiah's heart and preparing him for the moment right now, but he was also changing the king's heart. Proverbs 21.1. Write this down. Look at the proverb, the writer of the Proverbs says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever his will, what he wills. Or 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands is power and might so that none is able to withstand you, not even the king of Persia. And so Nehemiah responds after he prayed that prayer. I wonder if this was even Nehemiah's words, but the Holy Spirit working in and through him. I mean, because what he requests is bold. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Okay, that's great. Verse 6, and the king said to me, it's interesting, in parentheses, the queen sitting beside him. I mean, why is that there? I'm telling you, any good husband knows this, you better look to your wife. What do you think, dear? <laughs> she got some wisdom right there, I'm telling you. Maybe she whispered, hey, find out how long you be gone. Okay, how long will you be gone? And when do you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. How did Nehemiah figure out how long he was going to be gone? He had to rebuild the wall. This thing is huge. I think it goes back all to the prayer. I think it goes all back to the time of waiting and preparing Nehemiah's heart and preparing him for this time right here. God revealed to him in such a powerful way his response. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Nehemiah knew he had to build a wall, didn't know how he was going to do it. The Lord ordered and established his steps. And then look at 7 and 8. Not only in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7, he said to the king, If it pleases the king, give me letters of passage. And then verse 8, he says, take me to Asaph and make him give me wood. Not only build the temple, not only the wall, but my own house. Man, I'm telling you, this guy lived, go big or go home. This guy asked for it all. And look at the response, end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. As I 
read this and studied this, I couldn't help but think about one of our staff members, uh, Renee Page. And I'm asking Renee if she'd come forward because she's our women's discipling coordinator. And in the short time that she's been here on staff at Gloria Day, I've been learning from her about prayer and surrender and, and waiting. She is a prayer warrior and someone that I'm wanting to learn from. And, and so I've asked her to share with y'all just a, 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 a little bit of what prayer looks like for her. So Renee, thank you. And would you share with us um, this role of prayer in your life? Sunday checkmark type Christian. So as long as I came to church on Sunday, I was good for the entire week. Uh, I was not reading my Bible and I didn't have any type of significant prayer life. Um, but about 11 years ago, God really just got a hold of me and just turned my life around. And I would love to share everything that he's been doing in my life over the past decade. But we'll just talk about specifically how he transformed my prayer life. And so like most of us, I've been praying since I was a little kid. Um, but, you know, as I got older, the things that I prayed about got a lot more mature. But God showed me that I was still praying just like I was a little kid. And I wanted what I wanted, and I wanted my Father in Heaven to give it to me. And that was my point in prayer. And so God revealed to me the importance of my position in prayer. And what I mean by that is... He showed me that sometimes I was praying from a position of arrogance where, you know, I was telling God what he needed to do and he should really listen to me and then everything's going to work out fine. And sometimes I was praying from a position of selfishness where I was praying for things that were really good for me, but not for the kingdom. And sometimes I was praying for forgiveness, but I was not in a position to repent. And so I was asking for forgiveness about things that I wasn't willing to change. And so, um, you know, God was revealing to me that I wasn't hearing from him because I wasn't in a position to receive from him. I didn't, I didn't want his word. I didn't want him to direct anything back at me. I didn't want conviction. I didn't want correction. I didn't want rebuke. I just wanted him to fix my problems and then leave me alone. But, um, you know, over a couple of years and through some very, um, very significant trials, he taught me to pray from a position of surrender. And so in a position of surrender, I am trusting that God is God and I'm letting God be God and I'm not trying to step into that position. And I'm trusting that he knows more about my situation than I do and that he even knows my heart better than I do. And so when I'm in a position of surrender, I'm able to receive his answers even when they're not the answers that I was praying for. And sometimes his answers are yes, and sometimes they're no, sometimes they're wait. Sometimes he does change my circumstances, but I would say more often he changes me to adapt to my circumstances. But as he's taught me, and it's, uh, you know, it's been years and I still don't get it right, but as he has been you know, teaching me to pray from a position of surrender, um, he's been able to change my heart and he's been able to call me into deeper prayer and um, he's been able to open a lot of doors through that. Uh, Renee, you talk about deeper prayer and surrender. What are some of the tools that you have started using to take you to that place of deeper prayer and surrender? Well, the, the biggest thing is reading the word. 
Um, and so it's, it's hard to pray to a God that you don't really know very well. And so um, reading the word from a standpoint of understanding his character and understanding myself as his child and how that's revealed through the word. So that's super important. Um, but then um, lots of times praying his promises back to him. Um, just really standing on his promises, even when I don't see things materializing in front of me, when I continue to pray his promises back to him, things like, you know, Lord, I know that you work all things out for the good of those who love you. Even though I don't see it happening, I know you are good. And when I learn to just pray his promises back to him, that helps me trust him more. That helps me wait. That helps me um, just, just have that peace uh, while I'm waiting for him to, to um, move. Um, there's so much more that Renee can share with you. Um, not only about the terms of prayer, but also of fasting. And I asked her if she would be willing to share her contact information. So if you ever want to stop Renee and just ask her information or you want to email her, uh, this is a great opportunity that I think is a congregation for us to learn about the spiritual disciplines of prayer and, and fasting. So Renee, thank you for just giving a little taste of it today how we live our lives in heaven. Thank you. Hey, I'll leave you with this. It's from Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and and he who searches a heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. You see... Nehemiah is living out what we know in Romans chapter 8. His prayer is a, a prayer of trust, of patience, of waiting. I was reminded that oftentimes in our lives, we want to get things done right away. But let me remind you, while we may be into microwaving, God is into marinating. So be still. And know that he is God. That he may be exalted in all the earth. May God grant that to each of us for Jesus' sake. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope God used this time to turn your heart more towards him. Be sure to check out Glory Day online at gdlc.org for next steps you can take. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at GDLC Houston as we help more people live life with Jesus every day.